The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Good morning and welcome to Squawk Box. Here are your headlines. Spanish Prime Minister Pedro Sanchez calls a snap election for the 23rd of July as the embattled leader looks to shore up support for his socialist party after heavy losses in regional elections. Although yesterday's elections had a municipal and regional reach, the direction and message of the vote goes further. The debt ceiling deal faces its first test in the House Rules Committee today amid early signs of resistance from hard-right Republican lawmakers. But President Biden says he's confident the bill will pass. There is no reason why it shouldn't get done by the 5th. I'm confident that we'll get a vote in both houses. Well, as far as the markets are concerned, Asian equities are mixed this hour. Oil slipping as investors await Wall Street's reaction to the debt deal that was struck during the long holiday weekend. And UK shop price inflation soars to its highest level in 18 years, hitting 9% and heaping further pressure on the Bank of England. Spanish Prime Minister Pedro Sanchez has called a snap election in the wake of heavy losses for his left-wing coalition government in regional ballots. A national vote had been expected in December, but that has now been brought forward five months, taking place just three weeks after Spain takes over the presidency of the EU in July. Let's get out to Charlotte from Madrid. Charlotte, when we're talking about the wash-up of regional and local elections, we're looking ahead to December, months down the track, and we're all ready for a trip later this year where we're going to dive deep into the politics in Spain. This is all happening much quicker than anyone had anticipated. So just give us a sense of how Pedro Sanchez is looking at his options now as he brings forward the election. Yes, it was a shock announcement, Karen. I was standing in front of the Spanish Parliament that would be dissolved today because we're now just 53 days away from the next election. And it's like the regional election already feel really far behind because we are full on onto the national election that now will be held uh, on the 23rd of July. So a very big shock announcement here by Pedro Sanchez. Apparently only a very close circle around him knew about it. Even some members of his government didn't know about it until it was announced. And uh, I remember it's because those regional election numbers were much worse than expected for the socialists. Remember, they held nine regions. They lost six of them. They don't run any of the five big cities in the country. So yesterday, Pedro Sanchez making this announcement, saying he was taking responsibility and it was time for the Spanish people to decide the direction for the country. Although yesterday's elections had a municipal and regional reach, the direction and message of the vote goes further. So as Prime Minister and also General Secretary of the Socialist Party, I directly assume the results and I think it necessary to give a response and put under the scrutiny of the people's vote our democratic mandate. So with this quick snap election, Pedro Sanchez says he wants just the decision for the Spanish people to come quick. Uh, he's been criticized to a certain extent. People saying, look, is he trying to do something for the country or for himself, trying to limit damage after this very bruising result in the regional election? Also, he's giving a bit of an electroshock to some of his far-left coalition partners that are very badly in the regional election, Unidas Podemos, because there's a lot of fractions, a lot of tension with these smaller coalition partners. So now they have only 10 days of smaller partners to agree on a joint list and try to 
joined forces, the whole left, together to stand in that election. Basically, the message that we expect from Pedro Sanchez and the left will be, vote for us to block the conservatives and the far right. And that's the message that we expect, basically. We also heard from the conservative leader, uh, Alberto Feijó, who, of course, was of the big winner of that regional election. He spoke yesterday as well and saying that he's hoping to have a clear majority to lead the country. The result from the regional election has expressed powerfully and clearly the great desire for change our society has. I congratulate my party for this exceptional result and urge it to work to confirm it and improve it in the general election. We enter this challenge with the best version of the popular party, united, calm and committed to our country. So now in terms of calendar again, the parliament behind me will be dissolved today. The campaign will start on July 7th and the election will be on July 23rd, which is very controversial. First time ever it's held in the middle of summer. A lot of people will be away. School holidays, of course, the children will be uh, away. So it's controversial. It could affect a turnout as well, this election in the middle of summer. Uh, and then uh, the, the, the court, the, the parliament behind me could sit uh, in the beginning of August and then I have then two months after sitting to pick and vote for the Prime Minister. It would be the leader of the majority that is voted that could be Prime Minister. Again, remember, Pedro Sanchez is a minority Prime Minister. In 2019, they have to hold two elections within that year because they couldn't get a majority to pick a Prime Minister. This time around, of course, the Conservatives say they might have a majority. They potentially rely on the far right and Vox that had very good results in the regional election. Uh, yesterday, Mr. Feijo said that they talked to the far right just to congratulate each other on the regional uh, election, not to negotiate a potential deal. So that will come potentially in the next few days. Could that turn away some of the more uh, centre-right voters? Potentially, that's again a taboo that is breaking in Spain of having the far right on board potentially in the government. So uh, this election coming through, Pedro Sanchez trying to limit the damage after this regional election. The Conservatives hoping to have a majority, but for the moment, it's very unclear on whether one side or the other could really have a, a majority. Guys. Charlotte, uh, no doubt the tourists would already have arrived by the time the, this election is staged, as we talk about a, a late July election here. But when it comes to the, the time frame here, it doesn't feel as though we know, know much about the opposition policies. How much time have the Conservatives had to flesh out their pitch to voters? Absolutely. And that's probably one of the reasons why Pedro Sanchez called for that snap election. Their key message will be for the left will be, look, the economy is doing well. Uh, we grew by five and a half percent last year. It's going by two percent this year. But again, reminding you that the, the Spanish economy is still on the pre-pandemic level. So like one of our guests yesterday, Daniel Lacalle, is saying, look, they've been trumpeting the results on the Spanish economy, but the numbers are actually not that good. So it's a bit of a, of a gamble for the left. But also the left message will be vote for us to block the far right. On the, on, for the Conservatives, as you're saying, they have very short time to uh, set up the agenda because they have run their regional campaign of be basically being the anti-Sanchez. There was no much more flesh to this, uh, to this message than that. So now they have to get together on what their, their front message they want to be. Their key message is um, they, to be the anti-Sanchismo. That's the word that they've used a lot, so the anti-Sanchez. They say it's a politics of a fractured country with Pedro Sanchez relying on a lot of the separatists 
parties, including sort of the Basque uh, parties of some of the Catalan Catalan uh, parties, and so um, the, the, the centre right and the conservative very much rule on the united Spain against uh, some uh, some of those separatist uh, parties. So that would be one of the key messages. Also, a message of stability and potentially of fiscal uh, a tightening, because that's starting to trickle into the debate. We heard some of the Commission message uh, telling Spain that they have to cut some of their handouts uh, to the Spanish people that have done over the past two years. So maybe maybe the Conservative will go on that classic uh, Conservative message of fiscal responsibility. One thing that is controversial as well that I wanted to bring up is that Spain is supposed to hold the rotating EU presidency from July 1st. Of course, this is completely now going to be uh, taken over by the Spanish campaign. So a lot of people in Europe and in Brussels are worried that now the Spanish uh, presidency, nothing much is going to be achieved because it's all the beginning of it will be caught up by the Spanish uh, election and potentially a change of government then in August or September, the two months of negotiations. There's a worry that six months will be lost uh, for the EU and a lot of big reforms are needed at the moment, guys. Charlotte, thank you very much for bringing us the latest coverage there from Spain. I want to show you how the markets reacted. It was a very slim range for the Spanish stock market yesterday. The IBEX effectively moving down by only about a tenth of a percent. So it was a cautious day of trade. You can see that right across the region. Don't forget, uh, this was a market that was meant to respond to some of the global optimism around the debt ceiling negotiations over the weekend. We've already seen that some of the earlier U.S. futures had responded positively. Some risk on assets had bounced. But uh, across the European markets. It was a tale of caution yesterday. Don't forget the UK was out of action for a bank holiday, so it will resume trade today. In terms of what we saw elsewhere across on the European yields, so this is the state of play, and uh, you can see uh, yields just about 3% on France, 4.28 on Italy, the uh, gilt trade 4.32, and over on uh, the German safe haven Bund 2.43, where we're tracking. To the dollar, and the early picture looks like this. Sterling making some headway, 123.53 roughly, just leaning positive. Euro, though, on the back foot, and it does make you wonder whether there's some election risk coming to the equation already around Spain. That's a question we've got for our next guest. 107, the handle we're tracking this morning. Dollar declining versus the Japanese yen, but you can see perched higher against the yuan. And a quick look at the dollar index. This is the trade. You can see it is firmer. We're picking up a slight bit of territory here on the board here to date. It is, would you believe, only up less than 1%. So that is telling you about the destruction of dollar is king story from the highs we saw in March through uh, April. We saw those big declines with some sort of wrestling back of that story over the course of the last couple of weeks, but not enough to perch the trade uh, much uh, north versus what we've had from that early in the year trade. Uh, Jeff, uh, big news there around Spain. I mean, yeah, this absolutely. is the one we're all reeling from. Uh, I think many were looking at the European presidency and saying they've got their hands full and Pedro yeah. Sanchez, Ursula von der Leyen need to work together. Now we don't know who Ursula von der Leyen is going to be working with. Look, we've got, uh, we've got Dominic Bunning waiting in the wings from HSBC. We'll get to him in just a second, uh, but maybe he'll, he'll listen into what we're saying and then we'll get into the euro and see what he thinks of the euro. But it was interesting you were showing the dollar there because the dollar is not doing what it's supposed to be doing. It's supposed to be weakening much more quickly and it just isn't doing it yet. Maybe that will come. And then you link across the same analogy to Spain. Spain is not playing out how the socialists expected it to. And I think there are a few interesting things going on here because it's hard to say that the socialists haven't tried to satisfy people's wants. We've got a tax on energy. We've had a tax on the banking sector. Businesses up in arms. Ferrovial, 
the uh, major construction business has shifted its headquarters to the Netherlands. They say it's not about tax, but you can draw your own conclusions here. So in this new world that we've moved into post the pandemic, where governments intervene aggressively and they apparently satisfy all needs, in Spain, they have tried to do that and they have still done very badly in the regional elections. And I think this is a big gamble by the Pedro Sanchez government to push elections up from December to now or early July to try and solidify some support base or at least spin the roulette wheel to see if they can they can do okay here as far as the market's concerned to be honest the ibex is up nearly 10 percent this year okay it doesn't match the dax's performance but that's still pretty good return so at this point it seems that even as the spanish population are unhappy with the socialists in power investors are not unhappy with spain yet we had a lot of opportunities to catch up with uh, the Prime Minister of Spain over the course of the last couple of years. And effectively, he was someone that was very much in lockstep with the thinking in Europe. And that, to, you know, is, is a big thing. We've not had a lot of European leaders in lockstep before, but he was one that's worked fruitfully with a lot of leaders and been on the same page with the war in Ukraine, very much supportive of the approach, uh, the handing over of military, uh, the movement forward on sanctions, the solidarity that Europe has expressed. So that's quite key as we talk about the next phase. You know, who, what does the opposition leader stand for in terms of that? We would assume similar, but we don't know. It's been very early in this process in terms of having to think about some sort of uh, leadership change, right? So I think that's the problem we're all grappling with. If there is going to be change and if Pedro Sanchez does not prevail, does not stay as the leader, who is the next leader? And will they work in the same vein when it comes to these big issues? You mentioned trade a moment ago. Well, in the context of the dollar, well, trade is a massive issue. We've seen the concerns about how the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act in the United States, could be wrestling some of the power away from Europe at this point, encouraging investment decisions into the United States market. What the Europeans come up with at the uh, council level, the presidency level, this is going to be quite key for the fortunes of many European nations. So we need a productive leader. So whoever takes over, and if you think about a new leader coming into Spain, if it is someone different, they have to get up to speed with Spain, but also the European politics very, very quickly. That's a huge ask. Absolutely. Well, lots of really hot issues, and we haven't even talked about the Spanish housing crisis, so let's, let's not get into that for the moment. But we just showed you a chart of euro-dollar, uh, 1.07. Dominic Bunning is with us, head of European FX Research at HSBC. Dominic, 1.07, is that where we rest for the time being? It wasn't supposed to play out quite like this. Yeah, morning, Jeff. Morning, Karen. Look, we, um, we're pretty bullish on the euro still. Um, you know, there's a lot of Noise, a lot of volatility. Um, you touched upon a lot of that uh, earlier today. And the US side of the story is also worth bearing in mind there in terms of what the Fed's doing, everything else. But you know, ultimately, when you look at the broader picture in Europe, I think there's still a lot of reasons for optimism. Um, when you look at the cyclical growth momentum going into the summer, when you look at the rebound in terms of the external balances, you touched upon investment, I think, Karen, there, um, maybe more on the long-term side, but the short-term investment story in terms of money coming into equities and bonds is, is really positive as well. So I think as long as you see those signs continuing, then yes, we'd be expecting euro uh, to start to base here and actually move higher through the course of the summer. That optimism doesn't seem to match the technical recession we're seeing in Germany at this point, Dominic. It is the Eurozone's largest economy. How do you factor that into the maths? 
Yeah, look, I think it's certainly been sort of disappointing in the short term. But if you go back to just a few months ago, uh, the idea of a recession, not just in Germany, but absolutely across Europe, and a very, very damaging one was very much in the price and factored in and, and part of everyone's thinking. So a lot of the economic outcomes we've seen in Europe have actually been a little bit better than, than people feared they were going to be. So in absolute terms, this isn't a brilliant story that we're talking about, but in relative terms, compared to what was expected and compared to where we were at the back end of 2022, I think there is some, still some reason for optimism. And as I said, I think what's also interesting in this environment, yes, Germany is suffering, but actually some of those smaller peripheral economies, they seem to be doing a little bit better. And that might be the way in which the economy is reacting to a relatively cheap currency. In the past, the way the European economy reacted was great for manufacturing, great for exports. Well, actually, maybe things are shifting. If you think about the recoveries we had around the world post-COVID, a lot of it's been more services-based. So we think that kind of tourism angle, uh, particularly for the euro, could be a really positive driving force. And it could be those periphery economies that actually um, show a bit more positivity. Dominic, there was a time when we used to talk about a lot of politics impacting the trade, whether a various country or another was going to exit at some point, uh, the role of populist politicians in terms of derailing the European project. What's in the price now when it comes to politics and how key could the Spanish story be at this point? Yeah, it, it's always quite tricky to really put your finger on just what's priced in in terms of politics. Um, I do think that with European politics, there are so many moving parts when you go from obviously the, the national level all the way up to the kind of pan-European leadership, um, that there are so many things to factor in. It's quite hard for the market to really um, effectively price all of that risk um, particularly closely. So look, things could still change. And obviously, as you say, that the potential change in terms of European presidency, that, that may be can have a bit of an issue. But I think we're talking about longer term drivers here. This is not something that changes the course of the euro over the next two or three months. This is a, a sort of decision. And this is part of the, the infrastructure and the institutional decision making that potentially does in, impact where things in, are in terms of investment over the, the multi-year horizon. So in terms of that shorter term investment horizon, it's quite tricky to really pin it down. And I wouldn't be seeing it as a huge driving factor in the short term. Dominic, can I ask you about the debt ceiling? We've got the first hurdle declared today. This is the House Rules Committee. It's seen as somewhat of a gatekeeper for legislation, but already there's opposition mounting on this committee to uh, the negotiation over the weekend between Biden and McCarthy. How do you think the market is viewing the challenges from here about clearing the, the debt ceiling in time for this June 5 uh, deadline? And what do you think the market does on any good news? Yeah, I mean, I think the market is still taking that fairly optimistic stance that, that ultimately a deal will get done. And even if we do just get past the X date, you know, there is that sense that it won't be a sort of prolonged and protracted uh, concern in the US. And it will be similar in some respects to some of the skirmishes we've seen over the last decade or so. So I think that's really where the market is. I think from an FX perspective, the question sort of comes down to, how positive this is seen for the US economy versus how positive it's seen for broader risk appetite. And at the moment, it does seem to be the former that is sort of winning that battle. The idea that getting past the debt ceiling will allow the US economy to continue um, to show signs of resilience, that US yields can keep pushing higher. And those higher yields have been partly what's driving the dollar higher at the moment. So I think it's sort of stepping away a bit from the political story and then feeding it in to the cyclical story to try and understand what's driving the dollar. Right now, it's that cyclical story that's actually probably uh, playing out a bit more. But if you get that sense of 
relief across markets that we're not going to have some kind of seismic uh, event, then that can actually play out into more of a risk-on type tone. And that would actually see the dollar sort of soften a little bit. So the dollar's caught between those two stalls at the moment. The cyclical story is probably winning out. But I do think um, there's plenty of room for broader market optimism to come back. And I think the dollar at these levels is, is actually looking a little bit expensive again. And positioning's probably shifted towards that strong dollar trade. So I do think there is definitely some room uh, for reversal here. Dominic, you've got a 130 target in for cable at this point. We we know how sticky these inflation numbers seem to be here, but you know what? The pound is really struggling to make a a lot of headway above 124. What, What cracks that ceiling? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. I mean, I think, you know, Sterling was one of the stronger performers over the prior six months, you know, since the, the the bottoming out really at the back end of last year. And it was very much a counter consensus trade. And we've been of that view uh, really since November that Sterling would do well. I think what you've seen to some degree is that people have started to get on board with the idea that actually the UK growth outlook has been a lot more resilient than people uh, thought it might be, that inflation is stickier, the Bank of England will have to keep doing a bit more. So maybe that kind of has swung things a little bit and and then gathering further momentum was a bit harder. Um, You know, what changes things or what can continue to to see it push higher? I think it is a combination of those two things. One, on the UK side, ongoing resilience in the data, further improvements in consumer confidence, the services sector and the Bank of England really delivering on that hawkish message uh, over the next few months. That's one side of the story. The other is the US side. You know, we haven't spoken about the Fed. Our base case is really that the, they're one and done from here. That's fully factored in to the market. The US data has generally been, uh, you know, decelerating, not collapsing, but decelerating over the last few months. And if you get that ongoing data divergence where the UK is more resilient, the US is a little bit softer, then that's that's the kind of thing I think that can drive uh, cable back into the high 120s and ultimately up towards 130. Dominic, and finally, can I just turn your attention to Turkey? We had the runoff over the weekend, entrenching Erdogan's leadership position. Lira, dollar lira looks like pushing through an open door here. There's no resistance on the lows for the, the lira at this stage. Do you see that support returning at any point? At these levels, it's really hard to, to think that the lira can rebound any time soon, to be honest. Um, you know, we, we talk about the politics a lot and all those things, but the reality is that the underlying structural story around Turkey's economy, the imbalances um, that have been building for so many years now, wide current account deficit, the requirement for for ongoing uh, capital inflows, high inflation, negative real rates, it's really a, a nasty cocktail for any currency to have to deal with. And until you start to see policies being put in place that rectify and uh, shift those imbalances, it's very hard to really see uh, where the end of the line is for the lira. So we still think dollar Turkey can trade higher um, into the mid-20s. And until, as I say, you see that really come through in terms of a a cheaper currency or a big shift in the the policy backdrop, it is hard to see where that that turning point is. So no, I think it's it's probably uh, dollar Turkey still higher from here. Appreciate the time. Thank you for joining us. Dominic Bunning, head of uh, European FX research at HSBC. Still to come, crunch week then for Congress as lawmakers get ready to debate the deal on lifting the debt ceiling. But the package could face a rocky road. And for more on the Spanish snap elections, as well as the latest market action, you can check out the Scorebox podcast.
Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on cnbc.com. Welcome back, everybody. The U.S. House Rules Committee is set to debate the $31.4 trillion deal to lift the country's debt ceiling today. This marks a crucial first step before a vote on the bill in Congress. But the debate could be overshadowed by hard-right Republicans who have already vowed not to support the package. The bipartisan agreement needs the backing of the House before it could be signed into law. Hardliners that are just taking away from some of the risk on appetite out there. We saw much higher futures even early on the session yesterday, uh, about 100 odd points on Dow Jones futures. Clearly, it's been Memorial Day, so it's a long lag between the trade as we wait for the market to resume trading today. But you can see on Dow Jones now looking not at a triple digit point gain, but 40 odd points to the upside. So I think the market just holding on to its powder for now, waiting to see how this plays out in terms of the politics when, let's face it, we are in a presidential cycle already. So the market is nervous about just what motivations are at play here and whether we could get derailed despite some positivity over the weekend. Let me take you to what we're seeing elsewhere on Treasuries. We're at 4.57, the short end. So we're still perched at a fairly high level at this stage, uh, as well as this narrative around the debt ceiling. There's monetary policy and investors have been trying to guess what comes next thinking that we had a pause, a skip, but then I don't think the market's entirely sure as to whether we're going to be cutting later this year now or whether, in fact, the Fed's still going to be lifting interest rates given that we see, still see stubbornly high inflation at this point. In terms of WTI Brent and gold, the trade around oil, that risk-off sentiment, as I was just alluding to, is impacting the oil trade as well. So the Brent price moving south by about three-quarters of 1%, 76 and a half the handle, 72 at 29% where we're perched morning session on WTI. We've dropped half of a percent. Gold prices are a tad weaker at this point, and that is interesting. If there was a genuine move to safety, you'd think gold would be perched a little bit higher. The semiconductor story. I want to show you this index because we are setting up for a fairly large day again, potentially on the AI story. We've had more of a narrative out of NVIDIA about just how pivotal this part of the cycle is. This is an ETF that shows you the very large weighting of NVIDIA. Also, don't forget uh, other big names here, ASML, Broadcom, Taiwan Semiconductor, Texas Instruments, Qualcomm, Intel, all part of this ETF. And this is how it's tracked uh, in recent times. Last three-month view, it's uh, encapsulated that spike too. 23% higher for the trade. And you can see last time around, uh, last trade up 4.9%. So it is one of the areas of the market to watch. Don't forget, single name exposures, not for everyone. Sometimes they're often played through an ETF. So this is one that uh, you might see a lot more of from here on in. Let me take you to the Asian markets. And uh, the early view is one where some of that negativity is just cropping up on the Hong Kong, Chinese and Australian markets today. The China market down the most, eight tenths lower. But again, defying some of that uh, weakness has been the Japanese stock market again reaching for another 90 points or about third of a percent and entrenching those gains above 
31,000 points, now 31,300 plus. In terms of the opening calls in Europe, uh, let's take a look at what we're shaping up for. The FTSE looking to return to the trade today after bank holiday yesterday. It is up uh, six odd points at this point, a little bit of green on the boards. Elsewhere, uh, the rest of the market's chasing some uh, positivity as well. This on the back of some weakness that we saw yesterday. But uh, it was a glorious day here yesterday, wasn't it, for bank holiday? Yeah, it was lovely. Finally, it seems that the British summer has arrived. So it won't be long before we get the strawberries Wimbledon and everything else that goes with the season. But very interesting, that Nikkei story. Just about everybody has decided they're now positive on Japanese stocks. It only took Warren Buffett, really, didn't it, yeah. to finally break the dam there. Out of the managers we interviewed, though, the other week, it felt out of the four of them, only one was positive. Yes, I'm sure that's changed by today. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.